Locked on NBA, the biggest stories, the local experts. Every Monday, we dig into the biggest stories in the NBA with the Locked On Podcast Network hosts. Today, we'll stop in Brooklyn to speak with Josh Bass of Locked On Nets about Brooklyn firing their head coach, Kenny Atkinson, and the change in their starting center. We go to Denver to speak with Matt Moore of Locked On Nuggets about the recent struggles the Nuggets have undergone and what they need to do to right that ship. And lastly, we go to Los Angeles to speak with Will Updike of Locked On Clippers about the Clippers' loss against the Lakers on Sunday. It's all coming up. The biggest stories with the local experts on Locked On NBA. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to another week of Locked On NBA. I am your Monday host, Josh Lloyd. I'm also the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast and the lead analyst at BasketballMonster.com and at Yahoo Sports Australia. We're going to be checking in on some playoff teams here across on Locked On NBA and uh, with the big news, of course, across the weekend of the firing of Kenny Atkinson. So let's get to it. Now let's bring in the host of the Locked On Nets podcast. Josh Bass is here with me. It's been an interesting uh, 24 hours or so for the Brooklyn Nets. They have fired their head coach, Kenny. Sorry, they have mutually agreed to part ways. I'm not sure which side was uh, was more mutual in that uh, in that agreement. Mutually agreed to part ways with Kenny Atkinson. Jacques Vaughn has been installed as the interim head coach. And then on Sunday, the, um, the change to the lineup came, which many had uh, speculated that perhaps the reason for the change in head coach was that DeAndre Jordan wasn't starting. Um, completely coincidentally, I'm sure the next day he is starting over Jared Allen. Josh, what the hell's wrong with your team? Oh my God, Josh, I don't know how much time you have for us to address all of those problems. Uh, shocking decision. I think there was definitely going to be some discussion over whether a coaching change made sense in the offseason. I still don't think it would have, but to do it midseason for an organization that has uh, just preached stability and, and culture uh, since Sean Marks and Kenny Atkinson were in place in the 2016 season has been, uh, it's been a baffling change of events these last 24 hours. Uh, obviously, uh, it seems clear that some of the players wanted Atkinson out per reports. I think it's very likely to assume that those players were Kevin Durant and uh, Kyrie Irving. Um, even if they didn't, you know, if, if those guys wanted him there, he would still be the coach. So uh, it's clear that maybe they didn't just kind of see the, the vision with Kenny I think a lot of the great work he's done on the player development side, it was overlooked by those guys and maybe he didn't have the credibility with them as they look to move into that next frontier next season as a team contending for a championship. Uh, it's clear that, you know, they obviously wanted their buddy DeAndre Jordan, who they pushed to come and, and have them have him sign with the Nets this offseason, be in the starting lineup. Um, I think Jared Allen's obviously has a much brighter future, better player. Uh, so everything on on this front has just been confusing to me. I am still wrapping my head around it. Obviously, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant won't be playing this season, but this team is now starting DeAndre Jordan. They're also starting, weirdly, Wilson Chandler. Now, Torian Prince hasn't necessarily been good, but Wilson Chandler hasn't been good for about four or five years. So there are some interesting decisions being made here in Brooklyn. Now, we, we talk about it, and it is, you know, we're not saying that Kyrie or, or Kevin Durant went to Sean Marks or went to ownership and said, we want this guy fired. But as you said, if they wanted 
Kenny Atkinson to stay, he still would be there. But how do you think that goes in terms of the players that really loved Atkinson? Like a, a name that comes to mind to me and from what I've seen is, is someone like Spencer Dinwiddie, who I think has a huge amount of respect for what Atkinson does. Does that create any sort of rift in the locker room there? Because we know Spencer was a big part of recruiting these guys to Brooklyn. So does that sort of Kyrie, KD, hey, we don't really want Atkinson. Is that going to cause an issue with guys that have been there for a while? Karis Levert, Spencer Dinwiddie, Joe Harris, perhaps as well. Are there any other names there who are, are, are big noted Atkinson supporters? I think, you know, those are kind of the the main guys. And maybe you could even throw someone else in there, like a, a Timothy Luau Cabarot, guys who have been more so signed off the scrap heap and have morphed under Atkinson's tutelage to at least a, a decent role player status. And in the case of guys like Dinwiddie, uh, a really, really good player in this league. It could cause a rift for sure. I think they're mature enough to handle it. Um, but also, oh, I think what's more important is you have to think about this in the context of Kyrie Irving's quotes from earlier this season when he said a guy like Joe Harris um, wasn't part of the core, didn't name him as part of that core, and instead was naming a guy like Garrett Temple, who is a more established vet and clearly not the player that Harris is. So if I'm a guy like Joe Harris, I'm thinking, hey, I wasn't named by the Stars part of the core going forward. I'm a free agent this year. I'm going to have a ton of teams interested in me. And now the guy who was looking out for me, the coach who really took a chance on me, um, helped me with my player development and made me a household name in this league is now out. Where, what does this mean for me going forward? I think Dimity's a guy that's always played with a chip on his shoulder. Who knows what he's always clearly believed him in himself dating back to his Detroit and Chicago game, days. I don't necessarily think he's going to have a huge problem with it, but it definitely creates mixed messaging for the future. And I think a lot of the reasons why people were bullish on the Nets is because, yes, you had these two star guys going in, but you also had an infrastructure in place that has been successful at developing young guys and, and really taking folks from the scrap heap in the G League and making them legit NBA players. And that was going to create a consistent funnel of quality role players around those big stars. And now that's clearly a question mark going forward especially if they bring in a more establishment guy like a Ty Lue and Mark Jackson, who I think would be horrible decisions. I'll get back to that in a second. But it, yeah. it does really cement to me the idea that NBA players are probably the worst judges of talent in the NBA. They consistently Crazy. make poor decisions about who's a better players. And again, you know, pushing for Garrett Temple over Joe Harris and DeAndre Jordan over Jarrett Allen just makes absolutely zero sense. And it appears to me that this Nets team isn't going to be in a contract with Jarrett Allen next season. I think that he is a prime candidate to be traded in the offseason and yeah, some other overrated. Uh, maybe they'll bring back uh, Big Baby Davis, the, the, the king of getting contracts when he wasn't very good, just to, just to fill in one of these roles. Now, you mentioned head coaches there. We heard the Ty Lue rumor today. I've heard Mark Jackson. If Mark Jackson is coaching this team, I just if I supported them, I would stop. It's it's there's just so many crazy things going out there. You the the Ty Lue one people are going to you just said it wouldn't be a good idea, but people are going to say no, that's fantastic. He's a championship coach. Why don't you think that would be a good idea for the Nets? Yeah, I mean, I think well, first completely agree with you on Mark Jackson. I don't know what I would do with myself if he was named the head coach. I think Ty Lue kind of won in spite of himself. You know, he was the classic guy that he just completely ceded all power to his star players, was letting them run run the ship. And ultimately it worked out because he did have LeBron James there, um, who was a is is one of the greatest players of all time, the second greatest player of all time. And you had enough guys like a Kyrie Irving, Kevin Love, other supporting players who made it work. But there was nothing he did that really improved the trajectory of the team. And I think um, generally with coaches, 
Um, you need guys, you need someone in place that can make players better or build a system around them. And I think from a development standpoint, he's not good. From an X's and O's standpoint, he's not good. And as a leader, he's fine, but he's nothing special. And I think the Nets can just do way better because Kevin Durant coming off an Achilles injury is no LeBron James. Yeah, and you know, I think that's so. That's the big unknown here with this Nets team is that Durant is you know, going to be 32 next year, I believe, coming off an Achilles injury. We just don't know how he's going to respond to this. He probably won't be that top two player in the NBA when he comes back. Now, maybe he's still a top five player, maybe a stretch, maybe he's still a top 10 player, but we just don't know. And the difference between being a, a top two guy and a top 10 guy is, is very, very different. That's like LeBron James and Damian Lillard say. And we all acknowledge how good Damian Lillard is, but he's not LeBron James. And that's going to be that sort of drop-off that I think we're expecting from Durant. So there is going to be multitudes of concerns here. One last question for you, Josh. How much influence do you think new ownership had on this move? You know, I think a good deal. I mean, I think if you're Joe Tsai, um, obviously you just kind of purchased majority ownership of the team and accelerated that. Uh, nonetheless, and you had a team that was 42 and 40 last year was a bright spot and really uh, outperformed all expectations. And now coming in, yes, it's kind of been um, an up and down year. And, and frankly, a year where the Nets didn't meet any expectations. A lot of that had to do with Kyrie Irving's consistent injuries. You knew KD was going to be out. But at 28 and 34, their expectations on where the team should be might not meet, meet reality. And I think Joe Side definitely exercised uh, some decision making sway in this but when you look at this team from josh what me and you think this is not a particularly impressive roster without kyrie irving and kevin durant now i think we can both agree with that but they might have had more grandiose expectations coming into the year and a playoff appearance and trying to build off that goodwill they have uh and they've really fallen flat and i think joe Sai was at a point where he said okay i don't know if kenny is the right guy for this let's just try to get someone else in and maybe as soon as atkinson heard wind of that he was ready to just get on um, right away and, and really uh, have some time off before uh, the offseason where I'm sure he's going to be a very highly sought-after coach. Oh, yeah, He should be snapped up almost immediately, I would imagine, once some coaching uh, openings do appear. Josh, everything uh, for the Nets will be interesting for the rest of the season and, of course, over the offseason, and you'll have it all covered for us over on Locked on Nets. Thanks for coming on Locked on NBA with me. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Josh. When you start your hiring process, you may have questions. Will you find good applicants to choose from? What about education and experience? And how will you know you've made the right hire? Indeed is here to help. Millions of great candidates use Indeed every day to find their next opportunity. You can post a job in minutes and use screener questions to help create your short list of applicants fast. Also, add skills tests to your job posts so you can be confident in your applicants' abilities. Their library of more than 50 skills tests ranges from industry-specific skills like accounting to general aptitude tests like critical thinking. Indeed gives you the smart tools to make hiring decisions quickly and to be confident that you're making the right hire for your team. Post your job today at indeed.com slash locked on. That's indeed.com slash locked on and get a free sponsored job upgrade on your first posting. That's indeed.com slash locked on. Terms, conditions, and exclusions apply. Offer valid through March 31, 2020. Now I bring in one of the hosts of the Locked On Nuggets podcast. Matt Moore is here with me to talk about a Denver team that's been a a little bit up and down, Matt, uh, losing two of their last three games to the Warriors and the Cavs, two of the worst teams in the NBA. 
Let's start off by talking about those losses. Is there anything to be concerned about, about the Nuggets not getting up for these uh, teams that really are playing for anything? I think there's enough to be concerned uh, because their floor is so low. So um, the good teams, and really the Nuggets earlier this season, were able to, are even if they don't have it on any given night, even if it's not like a, a night where you have the best effort, you're still able to go out and beat these teams because you're able to execute and you have enough talent and you just wind up winning. It may not be impressive, but you get the job done. The Nuggets are losing because they may not have that talent and that talent has eroded. Uh, Will Barton's not playing well. He did have a better game versus Cleveland. Uh, Gary Harris hasn't played well, although he's played a little bit better as of late. Um, the Cavs game, I think, was a little bit of an outlier just because Nikola Jokic was so quiet in that one. Eight points, eight boards, eight assists. Um, for him not to have a bigger impact on the game is pretty rare uh, since November. But overall, like the Nuggets just do not have guys that will carry them if things are rough and they do not have the motivation to really try versus any of these bottom teams, they're banking that their best effort, their ceiling is going to be a good enough to carry them in the playoffs. But if your starting point is so low, I think it's worth being skeptical of whether or not you can get to a level to compete with some of the best teams in the West. Well, they look, they, the, before that three-game stretch, they did beat the Raptors, so they're obviously able to get up for a good team there. But this has been a, a bit of a problem with Denver, not necessarily not getting the win, but you know, playing it really close with these uh, with these bad teams and you, you're just getting over the line. I think they did it against the Hornets a, a week or so ago as well, where they just get over the line after being down for most of the game. And I guess there is somewhat of a concern there. The other thing that's been really plaguing the Nuggets, and especially Nuggets fans online, Matt, which you would have seen quite a bit of, is uh, what's happening with Michael Porter and why he is in and out of the rotation, why he's his role has dramatically decreased since he came back from that ankle injury. Is it uh, yeah, a Malone stubbornness thing? Is it Tory Craig's defense, which Malone did cite in, in a press conference? Is it Porter just not playing well? Is it a combination of all those things? It's a combination of all those things. I mean, I think at the core of it is Malone, I think, has a misconception of Tory Craig's defense. Yeah. Um, and like he would refute that and call me a moron. But um, I, whenever I watch Craig, he excels versus smaller defenders and larger defenders. So if he's having to play up at the four, if he's having to play up a level and have to play a power forward, he's surprisingly stout and good in the post. If he's on a smaller guard, he's really good at bothering guys like Russell Westbrook and uh, Damian Lillard. He plays really good defense when he can body and bully guys. But when he's mashed up versus wings, he gets torched and roasted. And that's been a pretty consistent trend. But Malone, because the defense is in so bad, 30th in the NBA, since the all-star break doesn't feel like he can play Porter because he feels like he has to get the defense. Now, before this stretch, Porter's defense actually wasn't that bad. Their defensive rating wasn't terrible and his effort was pretty good when Porter was on the floor, but Porter's been really bad since coming back from the injury. He hasn't shot well. And the big thing with Porter is that even if they're surviving on the defensive end, they're never excelling on the defensive end because he's lost so often on the court that if he's not making shots, they're going to be a net. They're going to be a negative. Like he had the worst net rating versus Cleveland of any player on the floor, uh, and that Malone knows that. But there's also some tension there with the front office wants Porter to play more. Malone wants control of his team. He feels like these guys have been there and they've gone to to battle with those guys in the playoffs. Malone doesn't seem to realize that the only way this team likely makes it out of the second round is if Porter plays a big role. Um, 
Um, I asked him before the all the, they resume play after the All-Star break. I said, is Michael Porter Jr. in the playoff rotation right now? And do you expect him to be in April? And he said, yeah, he's going to play. But what he didn't say was how much he was going to play. So his defense would be like, yeah, he's playing seven to ten minutes a game. Uh, he needs to be playing more, and them holding him back is a limitation of what they're going to be. Yeah, I think we've we've seen that as well. So if he can take it to that extra level, which we saw flashes of before the break, that makes the Nuggets a completely different team because it gives him that threat, that sort of X-factor upside guy who can go off and score 16 points in 15 minutes and, and pull down 10 rebounds and just be that extra player that draws the eyes of a defense towards him and opening up things for these other guys. Um, but again, is there any problem with Porter in terms of how he is feeling with this? Is he feeling um, disenchanted by the, the sort of up and down minutes? Is he taking it in stride? Is there any issue in terms of um, morale in that area or even with other players regarding how Porter's sort of in and out of the lineup? So this has been a sore point the whole season. Um, you know, he's expressed some frustration at certain times. I think it's hard for him. He wants to play like every player in the NBA does. And um, Will Bard was on record saying earlier in the season he wanted a bigger role for MPJ. Um, I do think that it's a complicated locker room to manage because, you know, of how these kind of minutes shake out and what winds up happening if certain guys are in and certain guys are out and Malone's feeling on it. The sense I get is that he definitely wants to play more and that his teammates are largely supportive of him playing more. But look, there's a lot of complicated stuff here where Jamal Murray, I don't think, is super enthusiastic about the idea that Michael Porter Jr. is going to be the second best player on the team when he's supposed to be the second best player on this team. He's supposed to be the star. Uh, I think, you know, uh, Paul Millsap is a guy that is going to be really worried about a rookie getting serious minutes and having a big role on a team trying to contend for a Western Conference Finals berth. So there's lots of complicated stuff and dynamics in that locker room, which I think is only adding to their frustrations in what's a long season uh, that hasn't been nearly as fun as last year's for them. One last thing before I let you go, Matt, with with this team and your guys who have struggled at times, the one I, I want to focus on here is Gary Harris because he has seemed lost at times this year. The shot has completely deserted him. But as you just mentioned before, he has started to turn it around in these last couple of games. Is there anything that's been noticed as being different in these last few games? Is he a little bit healthier now, or is it just a matter of the shot starting to go in? Like we've seen from him in the past as a 40% three-point shooter, is it just a matter of now everything is starting to get back together? And how important is Gary Harris being two years ago, Gary Harris, to this team being a legitimate Western Conference Finals threat? I think a lot of it is how confident he feels in his body. When he's been hurt, he has a really hard time attacking the rim, and he winds up going for the floater a lot. He needs to finish through contact, and that's about him getting comfortable and confident with his body after injury. He started to show that recently as well. The shot is an interesting discussion point. Um, he shot really well for two years after finally getting off of the bench after his rookie season. The shot mechanics were a real strong point for him, but because of the core injury that he suffered last year, some people have noted that there might be a little bit of a hitch more in his shot now. But I also just tend to think that that might be microanalyzing things and that he's just hasn't shot well. Um, I think it's promising that he's had some of these better games. Part of it is also the Nuggets just aren't taking enough threes. They need to be firing a lot more off the off the catch a lot more than they are. They're looking too much for the extra pass, the extra read, as opposed to taking open shots. Harris has been getting better about that lately. If Harris turns it up a notch, that's going to be a big win for them in the playoffs. They didn't really have that last year because he was still coming back from the injury. They need him to be firing. They need him to be producing. I still believe that he's a guy that can give them a big boost offensively. It's just a matter of where his body and his comfort level is. 
It is going to be really interesting to see how this all plays out down the stretch here and into the playoffs. Matt will cover it for us over on Locked On Nuggets. Matt, thanks for jumping on Locked On NBA with me. Thanks, man. Now I'm joined by one of the hosts of the Locked On Clippers podcast. William Updike is here with me just after the Clippers went down to the Lakers on Sunday. Nine-point loss there after winning the first two contests of the season. A lot of, uh, I see a lot of chatter on Twitter about, you know, that the sky is falling for the Clippers and, you know, all this drama. that They had won six games prior to this against the Thunder, the Nuggets, the Sixers, and the Rockets were their last four wins. So they were on a pretty strong run of form. What do you think was the major reason for the uh, the loss against the Lakers here? Uh, the major reason was just the bench not showing up to the like the standard that we're really used to. Um, that and just the ball movement overall wasn't really there. It wasn't really cohesive offensively. Um, and the you know like the Lakers had some standout games, but overall like they were just the more physical team, um, and they executed their game plan better. We've seen this Clippers team you know, strengthen themselves over the last couple of weeks, adding Marcus Morris at the trade deadline, Reggie Jackson coming in after a buyout from the Pistons. Let's start with Morris. How do you think he has fit into this starting lineup? Because he was um, objectively terrible in Sunday's game against the Lakers. I think he had one point and missed all nine of his shots. Uh, has a tendency to be a little bit uh, trigger-happy. With the, with the shot and taking uh, possessions away from the uh, the better scorers like Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and, and guys like Lou Williams as well. So how has that Morris fit looked? Because I think some would argue that maybe going from a lower usage player like Mo Harkless to a higher usage player like Morris could actually be a negative despite Morris being a better overall player in a one-on-one context. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, the usage... The, the higher usage definitely opens him up to more criticism. At least, at least Mo, you know, uh, even when he wasn't contributing offensively, he wasn't taking touches away from other players. So the fit has definitely been difficult. Um, I wonder how much of that is familiarity. Um, I had said early that I was pretty impressed with the way Morris has been able to take a much smaller role. Um, I was pretty surprised how willing he was to, to sort of fit into that. Um, but in Sunday's game, definitely saw him uh, making just some poor shots uh, from a selection standpoint, uh, not really having the the team ball in mind, uh, or really just being conscientious of the guys, the, the teammates that he has around him uh, when there were better shots out there. So I think I'm hoping that it will get better, <laughs> um, but thus far it's been a very mixed result. I've actually been a lot happier um, with the Reggie Jackson addition uh, in terms of fit, which going into the trade deadline, I did not think I would be saying. Now, Morris has seen his usage decline during his time with the Clippers, 24 with the Knicks and down to 17 with the Clippers, which is exactly what he needs to do in that role. But there is still moments where, again, we're not talking about a completely low usage guy like Harkless was. Now, on the, the Reggie Jackson thing, I'm a little bit surprised that he has almost really taken Landry Shamet out of the rotation. Shamet didn't even get to double digits in minutes today. He's been under 20 when he was playing at 25, 26 a night. And Jackson's taking away some from Pat Beverly, which I think is to do with a little bit of injury or return from injury management from Beverly. But yeah, the excision of Shamet from the main part of the rotation is a little bit curious. Yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, I think that I was pretty defensive of the Clippers' ability um, to still ma- like make plays even without a ball-heavy guard in the lineup. 
Uh, but I think with the addition of Jackson, it just takes some of the burden off of Lou Will, which, you know, we didn't see it in Sunday's game, but overall ha- has led to him being a little bit more efficient. Uh, and then Landry, you know, it, it's just limited into what he can do. He's he's really having trouble finding this rhythm from three. Uh, he's not a player who's very strong um, with, you know, with the ball in his hands. He, um, he he's not very confident finishing at the rim. He's not always the best at finding teammates uh, if he's getting trapped or in a heavy pressure situation. Uh, and, you know, as I said, like the three point percentage. The consistency hasn't really been there, um, whereas Reggie has, you know, other than that first game where he started, which is, you know, an impossible situation to kind of walk into uh, on a new team. Uh, I thought he's he's looked he's he's looked pretty good, really good. There's been some criticism of Doc Rivers for the way he's handled his center rotation, especially the way that he runs Montrez Harrell for you know, 17, 20 minutes in a row. I thought Ivica Zubat started out Sunday's game pretty strong against the Lakers, but again, we, we got a, a lot of Harrell. Those combinations with George and Leonard out there, but then running Harrell and, and running uh, Lou Williams out there with providing real opportunities for opponents to attack. Like how like Doc is a legend at coaching, but some of those decisions uh, are quite curious. What do you make of the way that he's running those center rotations, especially those sort of fourth quarter situations where so much uh, attacking uh, opportunities arise for opposing teams with both Harold and Williams out on the court. So I think, you know, what we were seeing today was a regular season rotation versus like a, a more uh, playoff type rotation, uh, even against the Lakers. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think there's definitely there's definitely some room for criticism. Uh, Lou Will in the in the closing lineup was you know a little bit baffling. Um, just offensively, he wasn't there, and you know he he was just getting hunted um, so hard on the other end that it was you know it, it was almost painful to watch. Um, and then the Zubats thing is like an interesting conundrum because even when he's playing well, it it still just seems as though Doc feels like he can't really rely on him to close out games. Um, He, Zubats had a like a a worse offensive performance tonight than he's had his last like four games. Uh, I actually thought that he was bringing um, a lot of physicality, which, uh, which I liked, but the fouls were a little bit of, uh, were a little bit of a concern, I'm sure. But those the, the big thing is like those mantras, Harold, like those third to fourth quarter minutes. Um, uh, I just don't know that that's sustainable to be playing those long stretches like that, especially just the type of player that Harold is. We've we've already had a bunch of games, too, where he'll roll his ankle like twice in a game and he's still out there. Um, and, you know, I, I trust the training staff for sure. But it's one of those situations where I, I just don't see the benefit of running a guy out like that when you have another center who can at least just even for a stretch soak up some of those minutes. Yeah, that's a short stretch. That's the thing that doesn't make sense. Is there's another option that can go out there that can be a good complement to the other players that are out on the court. And you say this is a regular season rotation, but he's been doing it you know, for 60-plus games. I'm not really sure that Doc is just going to say, all of a sudden now it's going to be a 24-24 minute split between Zubats and Harrell, and we're going to change this rotation up because at least you'd want to experiment with how that works during the, during the regular season at some point because, again, it's not like... When we talk regular season rotation, sometimes it's like, well, we're going to limit players' minutes, but now we're we're not limiting Harold's minutes. We're giving him way more minutes in that situation, which is a, a little bit curious to me as to how that all is all going to work, and it does open up some real opportunities for opposing teams to attack them. But I'm being pretty critical of a team here that's number two 
in the Western Conference just knocked off a whole bunch of upper echelon teams. And it was a disappointing loss on Sunday. But things need to be uh, yeah, sorted out with this squad to really push for that championship. Of course, Willie will have it all covered for us over on Locked On Clippers throughout the rest of the season. Thanks for jumping on Locked On NBA with me. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And that will do it for another episode of Locked On NBA. Now, tell your smart device to play the most recent episode of Hollinger and Duncan. Have a great day. See you tomorrow.